Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. In 2002, the architect William McDonough and the chemist Michael Braungart came up with a rather revolutionary idea. The two of them had recently published their groundbreaking book, Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. And they would go on to become leaders in the sustainability movement. In fact, they anticipated many aspects of what we today call the circular economy. But back in 2002, the two of them wrote an essay titled Buildings Like Trees, Cities Like Forests for a book called The Catalog of the Future. Today, two decades later, we return to that idea. Can buildings be like trees? We have two segments for you. First, I'd like to read you the introduction to Braungart and McDonough's essay, which remains as visionary today as it was 20 years ago. And then we'll dive into Urban Sequoia, a proposal by the architecture firm SOM that takes giant redwood trees, Sequoia, as the inspiration for carbon capturing skyscrapers and cities. Here's part one. Buildings Like Trees, Cities Like Forests by William McDonough and Michael Braungart. When the architect and theorist Le Corbusier imagined the future of cities from the vantage of the early 20th century, he foresaw a new industrial aesthetic that would free design from the constraints of the natural world. For Le Corbusier, the city was a human operation directed against nature, and the house was a machine for living in. He imagined architecture worldwide shaped by a mass production spirit. The ideal, one single building for all nations and climates. Le Corbusier's friends dismissed his futuristic ideas. All this is for the year 2000, they said. It seems they were right. In many ways, our world is Le Corbusier's world. From Rangoon to Reykjavik, one-size-fits-all buildings employ the engineer's aesthetic to overcome the rules of the natural world. As uplifting as that might be for the spirit of Le Corbusier, it is becoming more apparent all the time that buildings conceived as mass-produced machines impoverish cultural diversity and leave their inhabitants cut off from the wonders and delights of nature. But what if buildings were alive? What if our homes and workplaces were like trees, living organisms participating productively in their surroundings? Imagine a building enmeshed in the landscape that harvests the energy of the sun, sequesters carbon, and makes oxygen. Imagine on-site wetlands and botanical gardens recovering nutrients from circulating water. Fresh air, 
flowering plants and daylight everywhere. Beauty and comfort for every inhabitant. A roof covered in soil and sedum to absorb the falling rain. Birds nesting and feeding in the building's verdant footprint. In short, a life support system in harmony with energy flows, human souls, and other living things. Hardly a machine at all. This is not science fiction. Buildings like trees, though few in number, already exist. So when we survey the future, the prospect for buildings and cities, settled and unsettled lands, we see a new sensibility emerging. One in which inhabiting a place becomes a mindful, delightful participation in landscape. This perspective is both rigorous and poetic. It is built on design principles inspired by nature's laws. It is enacted by immersing oneself in the life of a place to discover the most fitting and beautiful materials and forms. It is a design aesthetic that draws equally on the poetics of science and the poetics of space. We hope it is the design strategy of the future. You can read the full text of the essay, Buildings Like Trees, Cities Like Forests, at mcdonough.com. That's M-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H dot com. Deep Green will be back after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by the U.S. Green Building Council, a Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. USGBC is committed to a sustainable, prosperous future through the LEED Green Building Certification. Are you ready to grow your career in green building? Distinguish yourself from your peers by becoming a LEED Green Associate, now from the comfort of home. Visit usgbc.org to learn more about earning your LEED credential. Welcome back to Deep Green. Today's episode is about buildings like trees, cities like forests. We're here for part two, part two, urban sequoia. At COP26, the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, SOM unveiled urban sequoia, a concept for buildings and their urban context to absorb rather than emit carbon. The project also won a Metropolis Responsible Disruptors Award earlier this year for employing avant-garde technologies to support a resilient future. Metropolis editor Sam Lubel sat down with Yasemin Kololu, who is a principal at SOM, and Chris Cooper, who is a partner at the firm, to dive into the project. Here are Sam, Chris, and Yasemin. We wanted to talk about urban sequoia, which is really an intriguing, fascinating concept. It definitely caught our attention, this idea of buildings sort of as trees, buildings as forests, buildings as kind of a solution rather than a problem, at least to some extent. So maybe you can tell us first about how this came about. I know that you presented it at COP26, but how did it first gestate and then how did it get to the point where you were presenting it? 
Well, I think you have to start with a realization that we're all coming to and that we're in this tug of war between civilization and nature, <laughs> if I really start at the beginning, right? And that we're out of balance. And in our industry, we're recognizing that cities are responsible for a majority of carbon emissions. And we know that population continues to grow. We know we continue to build more buildings, more cities. And so we continue to push that imbalance. And, and I think that the industry at large has recognized that we are implicit in this imbalance and that we need to focus on carbon as an industry. And we have made great strides in reducing the energy that our buildings use in reducing operational carbon. But we are really, really only waking up to the realization of the impacts of embodied carbon. That the, the buildings themselves, the construction of the buildings is responsible for so much of the carbon emissions of civilization, of cities. And, and so we have been understanding embodied carbon, trying to look at that. We've been looking ourselves at many research initiatives and partnerships with others in peripheral industries and manufacturers and trying to develop materials that might sequester carbon. So we've started looking at, at, at small ideas like, oh, maybe we can build a brick that sequesters carbon instead of just a, a carbon uh, sink or holder. And in tandem to those various research projects and understanding what others are doing, we were asked to replace a very large building. We were asked to think about how to build a, an existing building better. Could we actually build a building that does more good than harm? And that simple question forced us to realize, you know what? We could. There are existing technologies. There are existing materials. We have all the, the research is happening around us. The kit of parts is out there. Can we aggregate this? Can we package this into a building that actually absorbs more carbon than it emits? And that was the birth of the concept, the ideas, aggregating all of these various research projects happening around us into one idea, one concept that a building can sequester more carbon than it emits. That's, that's interesting to sort of hear how let's rethink this model altogether of a building. And maybe you can tell me uh, on a technical level how this, how this works. How does it do that? How does it sequester carbon versus being sort of a carbon sinkhole like most buildings are? I mean, as, as Chris mentioned, actually, you know, we often hear, I mean, I'm sure all of us have heard that, you know, built environment is part of the problem. We are emitting 40%. Some say we're emitting 70%. And I think the question was, you know, we are, we are all very tired of hearing the doom and the gloom. I think we know it. We understand the challenge. But what is around us that we can take advantage of to make the built environment part of the solution? And part of it, I think we had to look around our industry. And part of it, we had to look outside of our industry into the other industries. You know, we, we did a research on some of the passive technologies, some of the active technologies, some of them that are already realized or in the making. And we assess them based on their efficiency, their potential, how could they be incorporated or not into the built environment. 
And as a result, we actually settled around three different ideas. One is kind of what we call the biomaterials. So these are materials that are using natural processes to sequester carbon in their formation, such as biobrick. The other one is what we call nature-based solutions, such as microalgae, for example. Microalgae, as it produces it, as it multiplies with the photosynthesis process, it captures carbon from the atmosphere. And the last one is what I call the uh, technological advancement. And this is systems like the direct air capture technology. They do exist in, in the farm format now. So in the big farms, direct air capture farms, they do exist as machines. They capture air from one side, then uh, capture the carbon inside the filter, and then let the clean air out from the other side. And each one of these have their uh, you know, pros and cons. So we looked at how could then these technologies be incorporated into a building potentially, and hence came our prototype and their efficiencies and how can we make them integrated into the building systems. So we are mainly looking at these type of three groups of systems and technologies to, to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. So it's very clear that you have these three kind of techniques, the biomaterials, the nature-based, and these new kind of carbon capture technologies. But then how do they get integrated into the building itself? We made a single prototype is where we started in this exercise. And we said, can we actually take a high rise, one of the um, worst offenders, let's say, and one of the most difficult buildings to solve? Can we take a, a high rise um, model and, and make that better? And so with those three systems that Yasmin described, we've tried to incorporate those into one single tower. Now, that said, that those could be applied to all different building typologies and all different scales. And so they might be incorporated in different ways, depending on the, the typology and the scale of the building. So <clears throat> since we took the high rise as a typology, there are inherent conditions of a high rise, one of which is stack effect. And uh, that's something we often try to work against in a building with vestibules and with how we pressurize the various spaces in the building. But you can actually turn that into a benefit in a case like this, where we have the volume of air moving, wanting to move from low to the ground to high. And we can use that to kick in or to become the source for our direct air capture mechanism. So direct air capture is a new technology. One thinks about it as, let's say, farms of direct air capture equipment, machines in a field, like one used to think of a solar array as having to only be existing in a large field out to generate a lot of power. The direct air capture right now is being prototyped as large fields. And so one idea is that you could take the individual unit, put it into a high rise, use the benefit of the stack effect to actually reduce the need for extra power to run the direct air capture. So we could incorporate that either in various points in the building or even just at the top of the building as, as an outlet for the air. I think biomaterial is an interesting one too, because you know often when we think about net zero materials or carbon absorbing materials, we tend to go to wood or timber or bamboo. There is there are other challenges with that. They're natural materials, but there is availability. There is a mass scale production and sustainable resourcing of them as well. So one of the questions I think: What if we don't simply have to rely on those materials? What are the other materials that might function similarly? Let's say. And some of them are already out there, such as, you know, uh, we talk about cork sometimes, hemp crates, biocrete, 
bioplastics. Some of them are more readily available. Others are more in development, such as the biobrick that we're looking at. And of, of course, depending on material properties, these can be used in different parts of the building. So for, for it to be structurally used, it needs to be either a biocrete type of material or biobrick type of material that can withstand uh, larger forces. In the meantime, you know, cork can be used as part of the insulation, sound insulation, etc. And then other things like bioplastics can be used for where we use essentially plastics and insulation today. So there is different materials require different kind of thinking and integration into the into building systems. And that's what's really exciting about them, actually. So it's not just one, but we're looking at a variety of them that could be implemented. And I, I think there's great potential. We're seeing more and more of it as every day, actually, in the industry. You've created these beautiful, <laughs> these beautiful renderings, these beautiful pictures, these beautiful designs. Um, are these designs sort of meant to optimize what you're talking about? Are they designs that you're actually thinking about building at some point? Where did that kind of process of imagining what this was going to look like, uh, where did that go? We imaged a, a single residential tower as the kind of center point of those renderings that you're seeing. And something that's important to talk about is that in order to get the carbon footprint down, there's a lot of thinking that has to go into just the optimization of the building, the, the true reduction of the carbon footprint to begin with, before we can even think about the sequestering of carbon and offsetting that over the course of its lifetime. So the, the images that you're looking at are really thinking about a tower in the most optimized form. And so the, the forms that you're seeing, the, the slightly circular form, the repetitive modularity of the building, that's all coming from ideas of, of reducing the materials necessary to build the building in the first place. So there's extreme structural optimization in that. You know, when we build a tower, we're working against wind loads. And so that form is designed to resist wind loads with the least amount of material. That form is also thinking about modular construction, which has huge benefits to reducing the carbon footprint and also gives us benefit in the types of concrete that we can use if we do it, if we build off site and then bring it to the site as a prefabricated pieces. And so some of the, the aesthetic of what you're seeing is coming from ideas of structural optimization, form optimization, modularity, and then the incorporation of some of these technologies. The interesting thing about this plan is it's not just about the buildings, but it's also about the spaces in between the buildings. So maybe you can kind of clarify what the plan is outside the buildings themselves. So the building alone is, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a great integer, right? That's what we started with. And to test this idea of the prototype, but quickly we arrived at the um, conclusion that the buildings alone make a difference, just like a tree. But actually when we multiply them, it creates a bigger network and its absorption factor also multiplies to similar to a forest, let's say. So if you can actually take multiple buildings together and link them in an ecosystem, in a network of different technologies and ideas, they become more and more efficient. So then we started thinking about, okay, buildings is one, one integer of this ecosystem, but there is also the sidewalks, the external spaces, the roads, the parks in between them. Can we actually customize an ecosystem at a larger scale, at a district scale first maybe, 
to think about how can we use some of these technologies or innovations that we talked about in those spaces too, and actually create a smart network that could exponentially increase the absorption potential is what we've been also focusing on as well. Just as we're thinking about building materials for the buildings that can absorb carbon, we can think about the same for the pavings and the systems that that connect between the buildings. This is where it starts getting very exciting because the idea just it becomes exponential. And I think that's what has to it has it has to be an attitude, a way of working, a way of building, a way of thinking that we put into all of our new construction and adaptive reuse and the interconnection of each of these buildings and systems. And that that sets us up for building a broader network. I think the impact part is tricky. There's an estimate from SOM saying that one of these high-rises could sequester as much as a thousand tons of carbon a year, and you could reduce construction emissions up to 95%. How do you determine that data? As you can imagine, we're probably one of the first to test this idea at a building scale, at a whole building scale. And so we had to refer to individual absorption analysis and tests that were done on different parts, that different group of materials that we're using here. We had to use, for example, for something like biobrick or biomaterial, it's about the surface area and the volume. So we had to look at basically what is the volume potential of sequestration per, let's say, uh, per volume and then extrapolate that to our building. And similarly, for example, direct air capture technology, we have data on how much each machine can absorb and also taking out maybe some of the uh, energy requirements that we would actually offset by building systems generally and multiplying that with the amount of machines that we might be able to accommodate in the building. And I think in this one, we actually took a fairly conservative approach. And then same with the microalgae. We do know that there's microalgae farms actually today. And we know the sequestration potential, the volume of algae has too. So we had to look at that for the sequestration potential and the amount of materials, et cetera, that go in it. On the other side, we had to look at how we reduce, right, the structural efficiency, the modularity, et cetera. So we had to start with the whole building and actually try to reduce it as much as possible. So the two had to work hand in hand. And what we are left with at the end is the delta left. And over the years, we see that delta growing and growing and hitting about 300% of carbon reduction, three times basic what a building would emit if it was to be built traditionally. I was just going to add that the, the reduction of carbon footprint is something that a lot of people are focused on and, and can be done today. So the reduction is is really through these systems of optimizing what you build, how much you build, the optimization of the structure, or the, and then the use of, of what we call carbon sequestering materials today. If we build a timber building, then that can really bring down the embodied carbon. And so the reduction is not such a, a, a grand statement. The key is that there is something in the building that is continuing to sequester carbon after the completion of construction, whether that's the materials, this algae system, or the direct air capture and technologies, then it's a question of time of going past the, the zero point. And that's what, you know, as, as Yasmin's pointing out, we made what we think are conservative calculations of the timing 
but it, it is just a matter of time if you can build into the material something that continues to sequester carbon after its construction. I guess that brings up the next question, which is how feasible is this? Is this something that you think is actually implementable? Is this something that SOM is hoping to implement at some point? What are the possibilities of this? Right. Well, it is absolutely optimistic <laughs> and it's ambitious. And, and again, it's a concept. And, and I want to be cautious not to state that it's a claim that SOM is building the urban sequoia tomorrow, but it's a concept that will take many of us to participate in to make this a reality. It's a way of thinking that we think is critical to the construction industry, to the world. And that's first and foremost the priority here. And so th that way of thinking incorporates research and technologies from many people beyond SOM. And everybody has to be working towards the same goal. So this means that there has to be implementation of policy. We should talk more about that. This means that materials that are in research have to become market ready. This means that there has to be the, the will, and eventually it will spur response from infrastructure. Eventually, as buildings are sequestering carbon, that means there is a byproduct. There is a product that needs to then be collected and can go to benefit, can go to other industries, can go to, can actually form the, the important loop here so that, that carbon is put to use. But the technologies exist to build at small scale today in direct response to your question. I, I think that we could build a pavilion of carbon sequestering masonry tomorrow. Could we build a tower that incorporates carbon sequestering materials and an algae facade and direct air capture? The answer is maybe not immediately tomorrow, but very shortly thereafter. And so we could, in, in real time, begin the design and implementation of a project like that. The momentum is building, and so there, there, we have to all kind of push <laughs> that momentum. It, it occurs to me that this is something that is going to be done in small chunks. Not You're not going to build a carbon sequestering tower with an algae facade next week. But as you said, you could start with a pavilion. You could start in a working tower, putting in biomaterials, pieces and pieces and pieces. And then finally, it, it all adds up. Sort of like we're not all going to be going into automated self-driving cars tomorrow, but we may have features in our cars that, you know, that have that and then slowly becomes that. <laughs> I think that's a perfect analogy. But we are at a turning point where that technology is starting to become a reality. Yasmin, are you seeing that turning point? Are you seeing receptivity at your firm or with clients to pieces of this at this point? Yeah, and, and Sam, that's an interesting question because we're seeing more and more emphasis on carbon and the requests that we get and the projects that we get. And we see more and more net zero some of our clients are very much interested in the beyond zero piece too, which is what we're talking about here. And I think I want to come back to maybe one point that Chris mentioned. This is an important point here about cross-industry and beyond collaboration. And I want to mention also a few key uh, advisors and collaborators that we had on this project with that. 
We actually had Ed Masria, Vincent Martinez, and Aaron McDade from Architecture 2030, and Chris briefly touched on the policy piece or the broader impact piece. And I think individuals like them, you, you can see the broad thinking here with those type of collaborators. We also had Will Shrubar from University of Colorado. His lab was in charge of development of materials like biobrick and, and other materials. We had Pamela Conrad, who is a landscape architect from CMG uh, Landscape Design, and she's also focusing on a naturally sequestering environments. And finally, Chris Needle of Open Air Collective, and he comes from an energy background, but Open Air is focusing mostly on carbon capturing and carbon capturing technology. So bringing this kind of expertise also around one table was important here. And I think as us as designers, we have to continue doing this. So the role of architect is quickly changing. As we see more and more demand and also interest in this type of technology, this type of attitude towards beyond zero, we have to continue, all of us have to continue working on this together. I, I assume the policy piece is, that's sort of the ultimate, <laughs> you know, if we're going to get this to work, we need the support, obviously, of companies and clients, but we're going to need government support. I hazard to think that we may not be the first place in the United States that does this. Uh, there seem to be other places that are a little bit more behind this kind of technology. Well, we are, we are seeing change. In New York, with our new carbon-focused laws, the conversation has completely changed. We are now assuming that we're designing all electric buildings. We are now assuming that we are designing efficient buildings. And when we have a conversation with our clients, the, the assumption and dialogue and the conversation is totally different than it was just five years ago. There's an awakening <laughs> that, that, that we have to look at this problem differently. And so we are very awake <laughs> at SOM. We don't have the answer. We have the, the maybe the fear of God a little bit or the enthusiasm, I'll put it that way, and the excitement to make a difference here. And I think that we're trying to we're trying to shout as loudly as we can that we all need to think about this problem differently. We all need to stop thinking about simply reducing our carbon footprint, simply making more efficient buildings, but we have to do buildings that are proactive. There's a challenge here for all of us to take on. And I think that's the point we're trying to, to push is this realization that, wait a minute, it's not just good enough to limit the, our, our carbon emissions, but really we have to actually fix this. And so we're on board to push <laughs> for policy. We're on board to push for material development, and we're on board to start to implement uh, piece by piece. You presented this at COP26. I'm curious what the response was. Tremendous response. I think what was, what was the most satisfying for us was the, the wide appeal of the concept, the understanding of the concept, and the wide range of outlets that picked it up and were eager to talk about it. It was outside of the construction industry. It was not perceived as just a construction-centric solution, but one that was a solution and an idea for, for all of us. The response has been very positive, and I think it was really a launching point for the idea. And actually, there are two anecdotes that I like telling about this. We actually, one of our colleagues' mother called him and said, oh my goodness, Irma Sequoia is, is on TV. 
have you been involved in this? This is a great project. Why aren't we already doing this? And the second one is, I think we had someone saying that now this is the kind of project that I want to talk to my kids about. So I think this kind of not just raising awareness in our circles in the building industry, but also reaching a broader audience to raise awareness generally in society. So I think projects like this play an important role in there for the understanding and adoption of some of these ideas we're talking about. I respect the ideas. I also respect the way that you present them and, and visualize them. I think that does help people that sort of are just hearing numbers and facts really start to visualize a different kind of future. That's really encouraging. And I'm really excited to see where you go with this next in little bites and in bigger bites. Chris and Yasmin, I really, really appreciate you uh, talking with me. It's really been fascinating. Yeah, we're very happy to have the opportunity to talk about this, and, and we're going to have to do this together. This is not going to be the action of a few. This is going to be the action of many to, to make this happen. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I am your host, Avi Rajagopal, and today's episode was reported by Sam Lubell. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lon Volker. If you want to read the full text of William McDonough and Michael Braungart's essay, you can find it at mcdonough.com. That's M-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H dot com. If you want to read more about Urban Sequoia, head on over to metropolismag.com. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Deep Green, available wherever you get your podcasts.